Welcome to Free Thoughts from Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. And joining us today is Timothy Sandifer. He's the vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute. And today we're discussing his new book, The Permission Society, How the Ruling Class Turns Our Freedom into Privileges and What We Can Do About It. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, Tim. Thanks. It's great to be back. What's the Permission Society? The Permission Society is my term for a society in which the individual's freedom is seen as a privilege or a permission that is given to the citizen by the government, as opposed to a free society where people are presumed to be free and it is the government that has to ask the people's permission. Now, that sounds like sort of your ordinary civics lesson from eighth grade about how we the people create the Constitution and all that. But while that's true, it's also important on a deeper level. The the American Revolution, what made it different, what makes the Declaration of Independence different, is that it reversed the presumption of er, an earlier generation that freedom is given to us by the king. If you look at the wording of the Magna Carta, it starts out, I, King John, hereby give the following freedoms to my people. And then it lists all the freedoms that he's giving to the people as opposed to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that say the people have all their freedom and they are choosing to give the government its powers. That's a profound philosophical shift and it's one that I'm afraid is being eroded over time. Is it is it being eroded because people have changed their philosophy of what rights are or is it just being sort of nitpicked to death by the kind of various organizations and entities, bureaucracy that, that you talk about in the book? A little of both. I think it's being I think it's being chipped away philosophically by the lawyers, judges, law professors, political science professors, political leaders on the on the upper end who have persuaded people to think of freedom as a privilege that the government gives to us. And on the lower end, it's being gradually whittled away by the fact that it's always easy for a bureaucrat to think of freedom as a permission and to narrow it down without even realizing sometimes that that's what they're doing. So like a building permit, California courts have repeatedly said that they regard the right to develop property as a privilege that the government gives to you in the form of a permit. But of course, if you own property, the whole purpose of owning property is so that you can develop it or do something with it. And so I, I, th I don't think the judges who say those things realize that what they're doing is basically, in a philosophical sense, overturning the entire point of a system of rights, which is that the individual has the right to decide what to do unless he's going to harm some other person. Because it's just easier to regulate people if you regard freedom as a permission that you have to come to me, the bureaucrat, and persuade me to let you do this thing. Making it easier for regulation would be one possible response to this question. But is this a mostly a semantic difference or mostly a philosophical difference? Like why does this matter so much? Because if on the one hand we say, OK, you have rights and the government when it acts is – you know, it's restricting your freedom but we don't tend to care much about how much it restricts your freedom. Like we, we think it's OK that it restricts your freedom in all of these ways um, and so the government is therefore big and meddlesome versus you have to ask permission and the government just says no a lot and so therefore the government is big and meddlesome. You know, the the real world consequences of this, does this matter much outside of those of us who care about philosophical purity or first principles being thought about the correct way? Well, I'm not sure how to answer that because I think that the when we talk about the philosophical basis of the transformation of our society from one in which a person is basically free to act 
to one in which a person is basically not free to act unless the government gives them permission. That philosophical change explains the many different areas of our lives in which we're seeing this happen in, in practical reality. So I think when I wrote this book, it was inspired by, a, by some conversations with some friends about the, the old rule of prior restraint. Lawyers talk about prior restraint in the realm of free speech. It used to be that back in the 17th century that you had to get a government permit before you could publish a book or, or something like that. And the British were very proud of the fact that they abolished that rule and said, no, there's freedom of speech in Great Britain, which means you can't be required to get the government's permission before you speak. Now, you could still be punished after you spoke. And so there's a, there's a good argument that that's not really all that free, but it was still an improvement. Well, we got to talking about this and it occurred to me that you can see a lot of our lives in terms of prior restraint. For example, medicine. You can't possess many medicines in this country, probably, probably most medicines, without a, 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 per, a prescription. And what is a prescription? A prescription is a permit. It's a government permit that allows you to possess a medicine. It's exactly like the prior restraint rule in freedom of speech. It says you're not allowed to possess a medicine unless you get the government's permission. Or even something like architecture. The government ha in many local communities has a rule called architectural design review where you're an architect, you design a house, you go to the government for a permit, and the, and the officials look at it and they say, well, we don't really like this. We prefer if it looked like an English Tudor house instead. It's perfectly safe and everything. We just think it's ugly. Well, that's a form of prior restraint on free speech. Architecture is a form of speech. It's a form of artistic expression like sculpture. And nobody can look at a Frank Lloyd Wright house without seeing that it's a, a sculpture, you know. And so for the government to come in and say, well, we don't like the way this looks. We're going to impose this rule on you and prohibit you from constructing because we don't like it aesthetically. That's prior restraint on free speech. So I see it as looking at all these different areas of our lives where it might look like different problems. But actually, it all boils down to one problem, which is saying that freedom is a privilege that the government gives to us. But with permits and, and most people – think that a lot of the permitting systems that we have – so you brought up building permits, for example, and, and maybe even architectural uh, aesthetic permitting. But with building permits, it, it, some people might – it sounds like you might be saying we shouldn't have any of these things where we have to ask the government permission. But in, say, San Francisco uh, or uh, a town that is beset with earthquakes and possibility of fire, like the permitting system helps make sure that that buildings can withstand earthquakes and that they're not going to burn down and especially uh, when a fire in a city was probably the biggest concern you could have for a lot of human history and so permitting helps figure out you know we're not going to have certain types of factories or coal burns like right next to a bunch of wood houses this seems like a good idea and yes you're asking permission from the government but doesn't that really help us out uh, generally and, and for the public good it's a very good point, and I, and I try to make clear in the book that I'm not saying that permits are never a good idea. It's just that they're much more rarely a good idea than people seem to think. So a permit is a good idea if the, what you're doing is very dangerous and very likely to cause a, a severe injury to other people, and there's nothing you can do about it afterhand, afterwards if that does happen. So we, you know, it's, it's for time out of memory – Doctors have been required to get some sort of permit before they could practice medicine because if you kill a patient, the patient can't sue you afterward. Maybe his family can, but the patient is dead and there's nothing you can do about that. So it makes sense to require a person to prove their qualifications before they, they are working on the operating table. But when it comes to things like, like pollution, for instance, 
there's another system that we have to, that normally operates in that case, and that's the nuisance system. That's the system that says you're allowed to do this thing, but you run the risk that if you hurt somebody else in what you're doing, they can sue you or they can get an injunction from a court to stop you from doing that thing. And that's typically preferable than a per, for over a permit system for a number of reasons. The most important one of which, in my mind, is that the permit system discourages innovation, experimentation, and new ideas. Uh, a nuisance system allows you to try some new idea just knowing that if you hurt somebody, you're going to be liable to that person. That is typically preferable because it allows us to try out new things. When you're talking about a building permit system in San Francisco or something, what that is supposed to do ideally is it's supposed to be like just a pre-approval nuisance kind of thing. It's supposed to say, well, we're going to make sure that you're not going to commit any nuisances with this property ahead of time. And a lot of the time that's sensible. The problem is it's always easy to go the next step and say, well, we're not going to grant this permit because, you know, we just don't like the way your building looks or because, you know, some wise government planner 100 miles away has an idea of what this neighborhood should look like 10 years from now or those sorts of things. It's a, it's a very tempting invitation to centralized planning. And as we know from the work of Friedrich Hayek and others, central planning fails because bureaucrats don't know what the public really needs. They're influenced by uh, by lobbyists and rent seekers who want to control the system for their own benefit. And again, it, it hinders innovation and experimentation. So when you talk to someone who thinks of themselves as a Marxist and you, you raise problems with communism, say, one of the, the bad arguments that they'll give in the defense of communism is, look, it's a good system in theory, but you know, it's just the people who uphold the people who instantiate it, the people who practice it, screw it up. But but that doesn't well, mean Homer, we should throw Homer the idea Simpson out. Homer Simpson himself, Homer Simpson himself says this in an episode of The Simpsons. In theory, communism works. In yes. theory. So is is this a similar thing where the problem with the permission society is not the permission society per se, like if the people who are giving permission were all wise and all knowing and thought about things the way that they ought to and were maximizing the correct things, then the permission society would be fine. The problem is just that we flawed human beings are bad at giving permission in the correct ways. Well, I mean that brings to mind the famous line from the Federalist that if men were angels, no government would be necessary. I don't think of it in terms of being flawed or perfect or anything. I just think the nature of human beings is such and the nature of information and knowledge is such that nobody can possibly know the amount, the information necessary to predict the future. So uh, I have a chapter in the book where I talk about a case that I litigated in Kentucky challenging the licensing laws that regulate moving companies. And one of the rules in Kentucky was you were not allowed to start a moving company in the state unless you persuaded the government that it would be convenient for the public in the future to have an additional moving company. And I, in the depositions in the case, I asked the government's expert witness, I said, how exactly do you calculate what would be convenient for the public 10 years or 20 years from now? And his answer was, we have no objective criteria. Well, of course they don't, because nobody can possibly know what would be convenient for the public 10 years from now or 20 years from now. So it's not a matter of that human beings are, are, are flawed. It's just that it's not possible to know the future. And it's also not possible to prevent the lobbying and jockeying for favors from the government and things that springs up whenever the government is in the position of redistributing wealth. I, I'm reminded of uh, uh, Isabel Patterson was once at, once said, you know, to say that 
that socialism is a great idea, but human beings just aren't good enough to practice it is like saying that sawdust is the perfect diet for human beings. It's just that they're not good enough to eat it. Earlier in the book, early on in the book, you discussed something called the Propiska, which I had not heard of before, which is a Soviet entity uh, that really gives an idea of how far the permission society could go. So what, what was the Propiska? Propiska is a Russian term uh, that means it's a, it's a permit system. It's a, it's a permit that uh, you are required to have in order to possess a job, to live in an area, to, to obtain government housing and all these sorts of things. It was basically your permit to be a citizen and without one, you were essentially an illegal immigrant in your own country. And as a, and these were – these existed under the czar. They were abolished briefly after the Soviet revolution and then Stalin introduced them – reintroduced them again. And they, of course, became extremely valuable. There's an old saying among Russians, sometimes attributed to Dostoevsky, that a human being is composed of three things, a body, a soul, and a passport. And the reason is because without this paperwork, you know, you would be unable to obtain employment. And, of course, it was a crime to be unemployed and you could then be shipped off to the gulag. So uh, the, I, I refer in the book to a very powerful passage in the novel Life and Fate, uh, which is a, a novel written by a, a Soviet writer uh, 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 whose name is suddenly uh, Vasily Grossman. Um, which is a one of these epic Russian novels kind of based on war and peace set during World War II. And there's a passage in it in which uh, one of the characters is desperately trying to get the, the permit that will allow her to legally live in her apartment building. And she's illegally living in it while she's trying to get this permit. And finally, at last, she goes through all of the hassle and bureaucratic paperwork and waiting in lines to get this thing, her application filed. And it is refused. And then a few days later, a man who kind of is interested in her that she's not interested in, he has some political influence and he gets her the propiska. And a few days later, he comes by and says, you know, in exchange for me having gotten you this passport, maybe you should let me come inside for some tea. And I, I think it's a beautiful and chilling representation of how when the government's in the, in the position of giving you the permissions you need to live your life, that gives them a lot of leverage over you and that la gives bureaucrats who have political influence a lot of leverage over you. Well, that, and that is a, a great point that I think a lot of people miss about the kind of little despotisms that individual bureaucrats can have. And it's not just uh, that you need to have, you know, as Aaron asked, is this is this a question of like, can we have good enough people uh, and have a good permitting system? But you would you need a lot of good people because at every little step of the way, the guy who decides if you're allowed to build and build your house or alter your land or get a job or or whatever can. Have have an incredible amount of power over you, and that can become very dehumanizing and corrupting in its own way. Oh, absolutely! In fact, it's it can be it's it's even worse for that reason. It's even worse to the moral and good people than it is to the the bad people who are willing to lie and cheat and steal to get their way. There's a passage in a, um, a pamphlet by the poet John Milton where he says, "Good men alone love liberty." The rest desire not liberty but license, which has no greater scope than under tyrants. What he means by that is the bad flourish under bad rule because they're able to gain – they live in that environment. They're able to gain the system and, and use political influence and pull to get what they want because the good, they, they have – the good people, they have these scruples and 
And, you, you know, I doubt that there is a single person in the United States who has not at some point or other lied or hedged or done something like that to get a government permit of some sort. I can think of an example from my own parents. When I was a child, my parents wanted to get me into a better school in Pasadena, California. So they said on the uh, paperwork that I was living at the address that was actually my grandparents' house in order to get me into that house. So that's sort of into that school. So that's the sort of thing that permit systems tend to encourage is misrepresentation or hedging a little bit to get what you want. And over time, that can corrupt the good person. In your your the book goes through. I think we can get in some of the actual chapters here because uh, you have chapters on speech and property and and earning a living and things like this uh, with the prior restraints of speech, which you mentioned previously. Uh, that was one of the big aims of the First Amendment of getting rid of prior restraints. But it seems that we still have some prior restraints on speech, just in, in subtly different forms. What kind of what kind of prior restraints exist today? We do. And actually, that was one of the most interesting things to me in writing the book was learning about some of these things that I had not known about previously. When, you know, many people may not know that when the when the motion picture was first invented, the Supreme Court declared that it was not protected by the First Amendment at all. Movies were simply not a form of speech, the Supreme Court said in the 1910s. And it, that wasn't changed until the 1940s and 50s when the Supreme Court finally said, OK, yeah, movies are a form of expression protected by the First Amendment. Well, if by that time, over those decades, what had happened was that states and local governments had imposed these permit rules that didn't allow you to display a movie at a theater unless you had a, lo a permit from a local censorship board. They were called censorship boards. Nobody was embarrassed about it at the time. And if movies are protected speech, then the rule against prior restraints should have meant that all of those permit rules were immediately unconstitutional. But of course, the court didn't do that. What it did was it said, yeah, movies are speech, but this rule against prior restraint, we're going to water it down in, and change it into a sort of wishy-washy test so that, you know, these permit requirements can stay on the books. Now, for the most part, they've gone away. But what that meant was that other kinds of prior restraint, particularly FCC licensing for radio and television stations, remained on the books, which meant that for uh, several more decades, the government could control the speech that went on. Uh, on in television and, and radio stations. There's other kinds of prior restraints on speech, too. Um, one that, that is really shocking is the increasing restriction on speech when it comes to political campaigning. The rules about, about regulations and restrictions on donating to political campaigns are so strict and so complicated and confusing now that even lawyers often can't understand them. And in the Citizens United case, the Supreme Court pointed out that because you basically have to hire a lawyer and go to the to the um, FEC and ask them if it's legal for you to do such and such in your campaign. Well, that's basically a prior restraint, a violation of the First Amendment. And yet every year we get more and more restrictions on who can support political candidates and how, which of course only benefits the incumbents because they've already got all the free press that they need, whereas true citizen politicians who are who are doing it because they believe in it. They have they need that money. They need to, to get money to, to buy television ads. And a lot of the time they can't get those resources that they need because of these complicated restrictions. Let me push back on I think both of these examples because I can see counter arguments against both the FCC um, and campaign finance as being the kind of prior restraint that we would be concerned about or even really prior restraint in the first place. Um, 
And so the first one, if you're arguing, you know, like, of course we need licenses to do broadcast television, broadcast radio, not because the government wants to control what we say, but simply because there's only so much spectrum. And if we don't give people licenses or in some way control this, there's going to be it's going to be impossible to listen to the radio or watch TV because it's going to be so overrun with, you know, with alternative stations jamming each other in a sense. So this isn't this isn't really prior restraint so much as like if you want to use this communal resource, we have to make sure there's enough of it for you to use without making it terrible for everyone else. And then on the campaign finance, the the counter argument there is it's it's a non-starter because what you're talking about here is not actually speech. What you're talking about is donations and how people can spend their money and money's not speech. And we routinely will limit people's rights if if the way that they exercise them is not itself a right. So like I can't – I have a right to enter and leave my own home, but I can't choose to do that in a way that involves me, say, driving over your lawn to get there. So we simply say like, look, you can you can use your property rights, but you can't – that doesn't mean you can do it in these certain ways and us saying I can't drive over Trevor's lawn to get to my house is not really violating your property right. Okay, so with regard to the uh, FCC regulations, I think the, the the permit requirement for broadcasters is a great example of how a permit system that might look at first as a benign way of resolving a problem uh, with about limited resources can gradually turn into censorship. What happened was that these licensing these licensing requirements were imposed for for the reason that you say, but then because at about the same time, lawyers and judges and law professors were saying, you know, freedom of speech is really a privilege that the government gives to people and not a fundamental right. It exists in order to foster democracy and public debate. Because they said that, the regulators said, oh, okay, well then it's better to foster public debate by, among other things, requiring equal time. So the equal time rule said if you allow a person to express an opinion in one area, you have to allow the opposition to come in and express their opinion in another area. And if a radio station owner didn't want to allow a person he disagreed with to take up his airtime to broadcast his views that the owner found objectionable, he had no right to say no. And that was a form of compelled speech. People were being forced to subsidize speech that they disagreed with as a result. Uh, with regard, so so that shows how a permit system that was intended in a benign, content-neutral way—it wasn't intended at first as censorship—very quickly became a form of censorship and regulation of of the content of speech, for just that reason. With regard to the election thing and and money being speech, I think the last part you said is a is a form of question begging because what you're saying is, yeah, you can you can exercise your right, but just not in a way that violates another person's rights. Of course, I agree with that. Uh, the, the very concept of rights, I think, in, inherently includes that idea. But if you exercise your right in a way that doesn't harm somebody else's right, I, I think that just brings us back to where we started with, which is the government shouldn't be in a position of stopping you. Now, the, the whole contributing to campaigns and is that speech thing is kind of outside the scope of my book. I, but I, I think it's a, it's a distorted debate because really it's a property right. Your, your right to donate money to support a campaign that you agree with really ought to fall into the category of private property rights. It's just that the courts have done such a terrible job of undermining private property security and restricting people's right to use their property that instead we're forced to make this argument in the realm of free speech. And I do think it's a form of free speech. I mean, 
if you say money isn't speech, then that means that uh, a person who pays to publish his opinions in a pamphlet and hand them out, that, that, that he has no right to do that, or that a person has no right to buy or sell a book, or to publish a newspaper and print advertisements in the newspaper to su subsidize the newspaper. I mean, money is so inherently connected to speech that it essentially is speech. Uh, but again, I, I don't really get too much into that subject in the book. Uh, discussing the, the FCC licensing, which I, I, the license system actually says that you're granted permission to broadcast in the public interest, convenience and necessity, which is a very uh, example of one of these great broad terms that they can use to uh, force you to do things like the, the fairness doctrine as you mentioned. But that brings up the question of this sort of right not to speak and to not have to carry the broadcast of someone you disagree with or with a great story you, you tell in the book to not have to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, that, that's an interesting little sort of Supreme Court saga. Can you walk us through that? It is. And I think it, the reason that it's so important is because it's one of these areas where the difference between freedom as a right and freedom as a permission really makes a difference in the outcome. If you believe that freedom of speech exists as a privilege that the government gives to you in order to foster democratic decision making and deliberation, which is the prevailing view in the law schools today, is uh, championed, among others, by Cass Sunstein. If you believe that, then there's really no realm for the right not to speak. What right does a citizen have not to participate in the democratic system then? If, if, if freedom of speech exists in order to encourage democratic decision-making and public debate, you, shouldn't you basically force people to participate in public debate? And you, of course, every few years you hear people saying, well, we should force people to vote and things like that. And uh, this comes down – on the other hand, if you, if you believe that freedom of speech is a basic individual right – and that it exists because a person owns himself and his opinions and has the right to express his, his own views as he wants to, then you cherish the individual's right not to be forced to express an opinion or participate in public debate. And this really made a difference in the Pledge of Allegiance cases, Gobitis and uh, Barnett. In the Gobitis case in 1940, the Supreme Court said it was constitutional for the government to force children to pledge allegiance to the flag against their will. And of course, uh, there are many people, and particularly Jehovah's Witnesses, who object to being forced to pledge allegiance to the flag. They regard it as, as a veneration of the flag that conflicts with their religious beliefs. And so Jehovah's Witness children were being, were being thrown out of school, and Jehovah's Witnesses were being even jailed and punished and persecuted and beaten up by their peers in the schools for refusing to pledge allegiance. And only three years later, the Supreme Court reversed that decision in the Barnett case and upheld the – I mean struck down rather the laws that forced children to pledge allegiance to the flag. And uh, it's a stirring opinion by Justice Robert Jackson, one of the best of the Supreme Court justices who went on to prosecute the Nazis at Nuremberg. And he has a stirring passage in the opinion where he says that the, the whole point of the Bill of Rights was to remove our freedoms – from the vicissitudes of political opinion and to say that, that no matter what we might vote on, our rights to freedom of speech and private property, he includes private property, cannot be subjected to majority vote. They're off the table as far as politics is concerned. I'm always – I just – as an aside here, I'm always struck like the Pledge of Allegiance. There's, there's these things that government does that our theory of government and it's, it's embodied in our founding documents is this social contract model. 
that government is a is a contract that we got together and we imbued this thing with power in order to get certain things out of it and we entered into an agreement and it has an agreement with us. And I'm always struck by how many little instances there are of the government saying no, this isn't actually a contract. Um, praise, or, it, praise me, praise me. Yeah, yeah, like so. So pledging allegiance is not the kind of thing you do in a contractual agreement. <laughs> uh, <and laughs> not this all, well, just, think of it this way. I mean, what if instead of pledging allegiance, the children were presented with a copy of the social contract and asked to sign it? That would be interesting. I wonder how long that social. Is, this is like the, the constitution. We just say you have to sign the constitution uh, right. every time. Well, that that could be a little different. They, but they first get Lysander Spooner, and then they get to yeah. I, I, these, the the Pledge of Allegiance cases actually open up a fascinating philosophical uh, can of worms, really, because um, on top of of that point, which is a very good one, what about um, the Supreme Court's decision in the Smith case, where it says uh, Smith versus Employment Division, where it says that um, a, a generally applicable law that conflicts with a person's religious beliefs, that person can still be forced to abide by the law. And it makes logical sense. Justice Scalia writes this opinion. He says, look, we can't have like a heckler's veto over the laws just because a person objects for religious reasons to what the law requires them to do. If the law says take off your hats, then that means everybody has to take off their hats, including people who wear yarmulkes or turbans, unless the government gives them a special exemption. Okay, that makes sense. But then what do you do about the Pledge of Allegiance cases? That would mean that Barnett would basically have to be overruled or the Yoder case where the Amish school children were exempted from higher levels of education because of their religious beliefs. Justice Scalia gives a pretty, I think, unsatisfying answer to that in the Smith opinion. He says, well, yeah, but those cases involved hybrid rights that were both religion and free speech, and so those are different. Uh, I don't buy that argument. Fortunately, that's not a paradox that I had to resolve <laughs> for purposes of the book. <laughs> you also write about a different sort of professional speech licensing situations such as uh, tour guides, uh, psychologists, interior designers uh, and talk about how there's a, cl a class of professionals who, who are getting – having to get permission in order to speak about these issues. Yeah, there are there are businesses that consist entirely of speech, and psychology is a really good example of this. Psychology is different from psychiatry. Psychiatry people uh, are prescribing medicines in addition to other things, but a psychologist is only engaging in talk, in speech, or communication of some sort. So, doesn't psychology fall entirely under the First Amendment's protection for speech? In my opinion, there's just no justification for requiring a psychologist to have a license at all. There's no difference fundamentally between what a psychologist does and what I do when I go to talk to a friend about my personal problems or when I go to talk to a pastor about my personal problems. And the, the states recognize this and so they fill their laws, the, the psychology licensing laws, with all sorts of exceptions that don't make any sense. Like, for instance, it's legal for a lawyer to practice psychology without a license in California. Wait, 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 wait. A licensed lawyer to practice psychology but a person – a psychologist needs to get a different license if they're not a lawyer. Exactly right. Even though I, I can guarantee you none of us California lawyers have ever received any kind of psychological training in our law school and some of us could have used it probably. <laughs> uh, so there, I don't think that there's any justification for requiring a license for businesses that engage entirely in speech. But the Supreme Court – and it's very strange because the court has never actually ruled on this issue at all, ever. 
except in some very oblique ways in two opinions that are not binding anyway and disagree with each other. But anyway, the, the court has, has struggled a little bit with this because there are businesses where you're advising a client, like you're taking, you're taking a person under your wing and giving them one-on-one -on -one advice in a sort of private, confidential, professional relationship like a, a, a stockbroker who's advising you on your investments. So if they can, if the government can regulate stockbrokers, can't it regulate the advice a stockbroker gives? That seems logical. And so what has happened is that courts have kind of put together this doctrine called professional speech, where the government sometimes has even broader authority to regulate what a professional says than what a non-professional says. Now I say sometimes because there are actually there's a couple cases that go the opposite way and say that the that speech by professionals is more protected than other kinds of speech. This is a totally chaotic realm of law where there is almost no precedent to begin with and the precedent that does exist conflicts with itself so badly that it doesn't make any sense at all. And I think it should just be abolished. I don't think that there is any basis for the government to regulate speech when or regulate a profession when that profession consists entirely of free speech. Well, it seems that they might be scared about the implications of oh, yeah. giving because lawyers do a lot of speaking and, right. and no one, no reasonable person, I put reasonable in square quotes there, uh, wants to abolish legal licensing and say that anyone can practice law because it's a form of speech. Um, and, and, and so they worry about striking down something like a tour guide licensing system because they want to be able to separate out the free speech element with the just straight professional elements to protect the people from shyster lawyers, for example. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on and it, it's a fool's errand. It cannot be done. Speech and uh, rights cannot be divided up this way. Rights do not come in discrete little packets that can be separated out from each other in, in neat categories. Rights are connected in a very fundamental way because really when you get down to it, rights are just a way of categorizing a person's liberty. Liberty means your freedom to do what you want as long as you harm no other person. And so that includes the liberty to speak, which we call the right to free speech, and the liberty to buy and sell things, which we call economic liberty. So if I buy and sell a book or a newspaper or tickets to hear a political speaker give a speech, is that speech or is it economics? You know, we can try and divide those things, but they don't actually separate out. And so that's that's the problem that you run into there. You're absolutely right. The, the, now, the best argument I've heard for lawyer licensing is that lawyers do things other than speech. For example, we have the power to issue subpoenas to people that compel them to attend a deposition and bring papers with them and things like that. And so the government can regulate that. OK, fine. Take that away. And I don't think that there's any justification in free speech terms for requiring a lawyer to get a license before he can practice. I wanted to and get again, back. we recognize that fact by the fact that we allow people to represent themselves in court. True, true. Um, I want to get back to uh, some of the best stories you have in the book and you mentioned it briefly uh, when you're discussing uh, a moving company, I believe, with the certificates of need, which are really quite astounding if people haven't heard of what certificates of need are and how blatantly just protectionist uh, they, they're protecting existing businesses from competition. Yes, absolutely. These certificates of need or certificates of public convenience and necessity laws, as they're called, uh, they were invented in the late 19th century to regulate railroads, but they today regulate a wide variety of industries, everything from moving companies and taxi companies to hospitals. Uh, in many states, it's illegal to open a hospital or even buy new medical equipment 
unless you get permission from the existing hospitals. That's the way these laws work. And the idea, if you can even call it an idea, behind these laws is that there are some industries where competition is a bad thing. Uh, and so therefore, it's good for the government to restrict entry into those businesses. It's, I think, fundamentally absurd. And even the economists who have suggested this theory have admitted that there are no actual markets where this is actually the case. But nevertheless, that's the law in most states and most major metropolitan areas. I believe what, about what kind half of, of the states. What kind of, like, what kind of things is – I mean moving companies was a weird one. But in yeah. hospitals, what, what other things have certificates of need? Well, it depends on how you define it. So the, the term pub, uh, certificate of public convenience and necessity, it applies to public utilities. So um, gas pipelines and things like that, they have to get certificates of public convenience and necessity. Certificates of need, that's a term that's often used in the hospital context, but it's the same thing. It says that you have to, you have to file an application and then existing companies are allowed to object to you getting a license. And when that happens, you have to go to the government and prove to them that there's a public need or a public convenience or whatever that will be served by your new company. Um, we at the Goldwater Institute actually are challenging the constitutionality of a certificate of need law in Georgia, where the state has a provision in its constitution that prohibits monopolies. And yet the state makes it illegal to compete against a hospital unless you get permission from the hospitals you're competing against. Other com uh, companies like um, liquor stores, car dealerships have things that are very similar to certificates of need. They call them by different names, but they essentially say you're not allowed to open a car dealership within a certain radius of another car dealership. And so they're just ways of dividing up the market to serve the politically powerful because the existing companies don't want to actually compete economically. We are recording this. This is our first episode of Free Thoughts that we have recorded, that Trevor and I have recorded since Trump was elected. Uh, because we got quite far ahead in recording episodes, so this this will come out quite a bit after the election, um, but we're we're all still kind of processing it. And I am curious how this notion of the permission society and it being wrong from the perspective of the basic principles of liberalism that this country was founded on, and that you argue for that you've you know dedicated your career to seeking to advance, um, what – where those principles of liberalism exist in the emerging narrative that seems to have come out of Trump's success and the way that we talk about it in the – like so what I mean is maybe the argument that look, the government exists to protect our rights. We have these rights that it's you know everyone should be able to live how they want to as long as they don't actually hurt the people around them is just not the way that America wants to think about its society anymore. That the government does not exist to do that but instead the government exists to protect an American way of life, to make sure that Americans live the way that Americans are supposed to live, that America is this – this nation that has an identity and protecting that identity is what matters and so the government isn't violating your rights but is doing precisely what it exists to do when it say – like let's say that it goes after the New York Times for being critical of Trump and his supporters because the New York Times is undermining the American way of life or it, it restricts immigration in these really profound ways because we as – 
an American community have a right to keep out people who think different from us or have a different religion, that, that these restrictions on speech are just simply like, look, it's not that you have a freedom of speech. That's that's just completely wrongheaded. What, what you actually have is a – you get to participate in this thing called America and if you do it the right way, great. And if you don't, we get to punish you or kick you out. That maybe it's just that, that this whole project of enlightenment liberalism is wrongheaded and the country has simply embraced a more robust nationalist communitarianism and that that's what we ought to be advancing and that that's what the permission society does and we should just kind of bite the bullet and accept the will of the American people. Well, I, 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 there certainly are people who believe that, a lot of people who believe that, both on the left and the right. I hesitate to draw large conclusions about the direction of the nation as a whole from uh, Trump's election, keeping in mind that the vast majority of people voted either against Trump or held their nose very strongly when voting for him. So I don't think that we should take, you know, be in too much despair about the future of the Enlightenment project as a result of Trump's ascendancy. Um, you know, there are certainly some people who mistakenly supported Trump because they thought they were defending the Enlightenment legacy. And so although they may have made a mistake tactically, their strategic mindset was to defend the, the principles we agree with. Um, that doesn't mean he's any less dangerous. Of course, he, he's tremendously dangerous to both now and the legacy that he leaves behind in the form of his uh, supporters. But um, no, I, I don't think that we need to despair about that. I think the reason for that problem is that, you know, if we take your average person who doesn't know a lot about political philosophy or political theory or, or things like that, they've got much more important things to do with their lives, uh, living their lives would be number one. Um, so they they hear the term, leave us alone. And they agree with it and they attract and that attracts them. So you and I, when we say leave us alone, we mean leave individuals alone to maximize their own lives and in freedom. But a lot of people hear that in terms of leave my neighborhood alone to impose its own restrictions as a community on how we live our lives. And that kind of ambiguity infects the libertarian and conservative world very strongly you find a lot of libertarians and conservatives sort of have this reflexive uh, appreciation for local control or they, they often use the term states' rights and things like that, even though what they really mean by that is their right to oppress their neighbors without interference from the federal government, uh, which you and I would strongly disagree with. So that's the reason why I think when you boil it down – why you really have this problem, this attraction toward what you and I would, would call proto-fascism from a realm that ought to, in all sense and likelihood, should, should go in the direction of freedom. Instead, people get drawn to these movements that are more nationalistic and, and communitarian because of this ambiguity about what leave us alone really means. And I see it as a major importance for, for people in our community to clear up that misunderstanding and say, local is not always good. And uh, freedom for me also means freedom for the other guy. I think Eric's question, uh, tying it into the Trump uh, election, is that this book is relevant in a, in another way too, because 
as as you as you subtitle the book, uh, how the ruling class turns our freedoms into privileges, the idea that the the system is rigged, this sort of this part of the narrative that a lot of people feel like the, you know there's a sort of elite cabal who are in different ways succeeding, and in in that normal people can't succeed in a in a sort of typical American fashion anymore. And there's people who get ahead because they get permission, and that's and I think that that is true and something that your book touches on in a timely fashion. We now have, I think, the the statistic is one in three jobs require a license, and you know it might just seem like well, you know, maybe all these jobs need to have public safety element to them, but if you're a poor person who needs to spend a thousand dollars to get a job and you can't get that job, then you you need to get permission to get this job. Then you start to think, wow, the system is really rigged against me in a variety yeah. of ways. Oh yeah, and Definitely. I think that that that, that that's a ba- that becomes a bad sort of cancer on a society when when exact when you have a thousand different ways you have to ask permission and the people who get permission are on average, more connected and wealthier. Yeah, I I, I swear when I watching these uh, these Trump rallies uh, in this past fall, I kept thinking of uh, Oscar Wilde's Sonnet to Liberty when he with when he which he ends with the line uh, "God knows I am with them in some things," <laughs> um, because the the that attitude that resentment toward political elites is right. It's that's well founded, and it's and that the, that political elitism is fostered by a system. That rewards political influence instead of actual work and skill, and uh, and unfortunately, what the people chose to support is just more of that, and and in fact, twice as bad. But they're they are right that our system is gradually dividing into the haves and the have-nots, or the can gets and cannot gets, and that is a result of the government's increasing influence over our economic and personal lives. I, I, all I can say is that that the solution to that is not more government; it is more individual freedom. Yeah, and there's and there's another factor too, which I've been uh, doing some some work on and some some media appearances dealing with how Trump will can what he can do in the presidency, especially as a businessman, and how he can get some of these businesses. For example, what he's saying he's going to make a good deal with these businesses to make them keep jobs in America or something. Well, the it's pa- already going on exactly, yeah. but the power that he actually has uh, that he can you know put the thumbscrews on these companies. A lot of it has to do with permitting and different types of things that you write in your book. He can give them a, a land use permit or he can he can say, I'm going to free up that uh, – your employment or I'm going to stop a lawsuit from the EEOC or he can do a variety of things that come back to the massive amount of government and, and permitting, quote unquote, permission kind of system uh, that, that he controls. And and the reverse is also true, isn't it? Remarkable that the permit for him to construct the, on the property in Argentina was approved very swiftly after he was elected president, when and when after there had been such a long delay beforehand, uh, you know, it's a way of influencing him as well. And uh, you know, the social consequences of this, I think, are something that the libertarian world has failed to emphasize as much as as it ought to. We tend to focus so much on the on wealth, on uh, creation, on free markets, on the political and economic consequences of policies. But when we talk about the, the social consequences of creating a society in which those with influence succeed and those without influence fail, regardless of their hard work and skills, 
That typically breaks down along racial lines. It typically breaks down along family lines. It worsens the divide between the haves and have-nots in our society. And it fosters what you and I would regard as vices instead of virtues. That is a willingness to invest one's time in political influence instead of hard work, which is not something that our society used to venerate. Uh, we, we have always been a society, ideally, that, that respects hard work and perseverance and inventiveness. And we are gradually, I fear, going to become a country that resents those things and instead respects the gangster strongman mentality that we are already seeing in our culture. I mean, look at how many television shows already feature the sort of prurient fascination with these uh, uh, tough man figures who come in and impose their will by force instead of uh, the democratic attitudes of, of cooperation and deliberation and persuasion and things like that. I think our culture is primed for the strong man to take over if he really pushes it. And that's the real fear. I don't think Trump is that strong man, but I think that he, he benefits a lot from that, that attitude on the part of the people. If you've enjoyed listening to Free Thoughts this past year, I encourage you to check out Libertarianism.org's Facebook page, where you can vote on your favorite episode of 2016. Free Thoughts is produced by Evan Banks and Mark McDaniel. To learn more, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.